Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. If you're listening to this right now, my hope is that you have already listened to part one of this conversation that I've had with my dad. If you haven't yet, it's available either on your podcast app of choice or by visiting optimizeyourself.me slash episode 108. So as I mentioned in part one, for a long time now, I have wanted to sit down and do an interview with my father to ask him the big questions about life that we seldom, if ever, really discuss. So for this Father's Day, I decided it was time to prioritize this conversation, even if it meant having to suffer through the perils of recording on Zoom as opposed to chatting face-to-face. And I will apologize in advance. There are going to be some dropouts here and there. I apologize for that. Now, I just want to make it very clear that this episode is a very special and personal one that I recorded for me. I didn't record it for social media shares. This is not about search engine optimization. This is not about growing an email list. This one is for me. But my hope is that listening to today's conversation inspires you to reach out to your parents, if you're fortunate enough that they are still alive, or your siblings, or those who helped shape the person that you are today, so you can have an honest conversation with them just like this one. In the second part of this interview, I have created a series of 20 specific questions that I'm calling 20 questions to ask your father on Father's Day, which you can, of course, repurpose to suit your own needs. These questions were inspired by a similar exercise from high-performance coach Brendan Bouchard, and I linked all of those 32 questions that he has in a Facebook post in the show notes for this episode. If you would like to use the same 10 questions that I ask in the second part of this interview, you can get them by visiting the show notes at optimizeyourself.me slash episode 109. Okay, without further ado, part two of my conversation with my father, Al Arnold. So I'm here once again uh, with my guest, Al Arnold. And for those of you that missed part one, no, it is not a coincidence. Um, Al Arnold is indeed uh, my dad. So uh, once again, uh, glad to have you back to, to finish up the, the interview that we weren't able to get through in part one. So I'm excited about this. Glad to be back. 
Uh, so uh, my hope is that if you are listening to this right now, it means you've already listened to part one. But if for some reason you haven't or it's been a while, I just want to remind you that the the purpose of this call, this is a little bit different uh, than some of the, the past podcasts that I've done. Um, this is uh, what I call 20 questions to ask your father on Father's Day. And in the first part, we went through the first 10, and this is inspired by a list of 32 questions uh, that I found in a similar format uh, from uh, somebody in the the personal development and leadership space. His name is Brendan Burchard. Uh, In the link to the show notes, I will put a link to those original 32 questions, Um, but uh, I'm always about optimizing things and streamlining them and making them more efficient. And I thought, well, why do I need to do 32 if I can do 20? which is probably a, a script that I learned from uh, from you, perhaps, trying to find a way to do things a little bit faster and a little bit better. Um, so this is not going to be the usual free-flowing conversation. It will be a little bit more structured. The first half in part one, you and I talked uh, some about your background growing up, and then we talked a lot about your career and things that really drive you, your deeper whys and whatnot. And this one is going to be a little bit different, probably not too different, but it's going to be a little bit more of a look at uh, family life and then just your view uh, about life in general. So there's there's going to be, I'm sure, a lot of good fun stories and also some deeper introspective stuff as well. But um, I'm hoping that uh, listening to this conversation between you and I will inspire other people to have these conversations with either their dads or their moms or whoever else. Um, and for those that actually want the list of the exact 20 questions, I will have that available uh, in the, the show notes for this episode as well. So on that note, we're going to dive in and we're just going to keep chatting and, uh, and getting these questions on the record. So we, we finished up with career talking about uh, the reading clinic and teaching kids to read and whatnot. We're going we're gonna to jump into our time machine, which uh, is uh, somewhat apropos given that we ended up talking a lot about Back to the Future in our first part. Uh, but the time machine we're going to jump back into is to the point where uh, you first met your spouse, i.e. my mother. So talk to me a little bit more about how you met mom, when you guys met, and how is it that you knew that she was going to be the one? Well, that's a very good question. It, was, it wasn't anything that anybody orchestrated. It was just an absolutely chance meeting. And it was one of those things, and I'm I'm sure that if you talk to her, you'd get the same answer, that somehow she just knew without any, I could have been a mass murderer for all she knew when she decided I was the one after spending probably about a minute and a half with me at a chance meeting. My conviction came a little bit more slowly. It probably took me many minutes instead of a couple of minutes, but it was was one of those, I guess the, the classic saying, it was one of those love at first sight thing so and uh, hasn't changed too much in 40 some years uh so when was that and what was the setting uh, actually it was a conference i was a school principal at the time and it was a meeting for school people uh, school people from around wisconsin came to appleton wisconsin for for a meeting so it was actually a conference for school people so how long was it between the time that you guys met and the time that I was actually born? I don't know. <laughs> uh, it, it wasn't too long. Just off the top of my head, I'm going to guess uh, something over a year. But it was, it, was, it was relatively soon. 
So one of the, the, the next question, this is going to be to give a little bit more context, and this is not technically going to be in the, the 20 questions list, but I think uh, I've, I've told this story probably about 150 to 200 times over the course of my many, many years. Whenever somebody asks me, um, do you have brothers and sisters? I always look at them and I say, well, it's complicated. And it's, the, it's gotten a lot easier to tell that story over the years because my situation is a lot more common than it was when I was growing up. But I always tell people that, well, you've seen the Brady Bunch, right? Well, just imagine the Brady Bunch, but then they have another. That's me. So to, to give a little bit more context, when the two of you met, you weren't these, these young kids right out of college that met and started your life together. You both had two, uh, you know, had, had two lives before you met, had two families. So uh, even though this isn't officially part of the, the list here, I'd, I'd just love to have a little bit more context talking about what things looked like up until the point you guys met. Well, I think the I think the term for that is yours, mine, and ours, and that was certainly a yours, mine, and ours. We both had uh, families, and uh, we we both had two children that came into the marriage. So it's uh, we not only brought ourselves together, we brought two two other families together. So the reason that I ask that is because the the next question on this list has to do with parenting. And I wanted to give the context that when I was born, neither of you were new parents. That was the reason that I wanted to throw that in there. Um, but the the next question, I, I, oh, go ahead. I, I, th- I, th- I think what we were called is old parents. At least uh, back in the day. Um, so I, I, I don't know the the exact math, but I believe mom was 37 and you were 39 or somewhere in that range when you had me? You you got it almost on the head. In fact, there was some question and some people, including medical people, advised her that she was too too old, too old to have a child. Which certainly sounds funny nowadays, Um, but I I can remember how self-conscious I was in elementary school about how much older my parents were, which now that I look back seems absurd because I see the the age of some of the parents now that uh, uh, my kids are in elementary school and Robin and I are sometimes some of the, the younger parents there. But when I think back to what would have been the early to mid 80s, I was very self-conscious of the fact that you guys seemed quote unquote so much older because things were very different back then. They were. So having said all of that, whether it has to do with me or whether it has to do with going back to when both of you had your first marriages, The next official question on the list, which I'm really interested in, is were you scared to become a parent? What what were your thoughts when you were were getting ready to to finally become a dad? I wasn't scared. Uh, I was just terribly naive. I thought, you know, this is everybody does it all the time. It's uh, you you go through it and everything is going to be fine. And so I really wasn't scared and I wasn't worried. I should have been. If I had any sense, I would have been concerned about how difficult it was going to be and how many problems it caused. But I wasn't I wasn't smart enough to be worried, but I should have been because it is very, very difficult. So having said all of that, knowing that you were too naive to realize what was coming, let's say that uh, we're talking about you getting ready to become my parent. So you're in your late 30s. Um, and at the time you had two girls that were, I don't know the exact age, but I guess it would have been maybe like 13 and 15, 13 and 16, somewhere in that range. 
I'm assuming you weren't nearly as naive about being a parent then because you had done it once. So if you could jump into your time machine and talk to you when you were going to have your first child, what are all the things that you had no idea were coming that you should have been scared of? Well, it, it, the answer to that is going to be the same thing. I was naive. I just did it and thought everything was going to be fine. And look back back in the early days, of course, uh, in my life, why one of the major concerns was just financial. I mean. Things, things were very, very tight and didn't have very much money and really to the point of had to worry, had to worry about paying rent and, and putting food on the table. So financial concerns were, were very major and just the, just the constraints of being a parent. I was also naive about uh, being a good parent. I, I learned a lot the hard way. If I were going to start over again now and have another have a third family, I think I'd be pretty good at it. So I, I may, I, I may, I may, I may think about starting over again because I've learned so much uh, and done so many things wrong and done such a poor job and screwed so many things up. I think I, I think I've learned enough. I could do a pretty good job this time. Well, maybe it's naive to say this now because in thirty years it'll change. But I will put it out there. I think you guys might be a little bit old. To, to to start your start another family. I'm just 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 gonna put that out there. Um, but that's what people told you in the '70s. So maybe maybe that's I'm wrong, true. right? I, I I've heard that before. Well, without going uh, without going into too many specifics and getting too personal and too detailed, but I would love to know what some of the the lessons maybe you have taken away from some of the things that you alluded to that you've you've screwed up as a parent over the years. So we don't need to go into all the the details because everybody's human, everybody makes mistakes. But if there were lessons that perhaps you wanted to impart to me as a father and a parent. Um, what, what are, what are some of the things that maybe you can help shorten my learning curve because you've already made the mistake. So now I don't have to, I, I think, I think this is very applicable in your case, as, as you and I are both very aware, we are both very driven for career and our jobs and our responsibilities. And I have always been very, very guilty of putting so much emphasis and so much energy and time into my career and my job and the things like that, that I, I look back and think that I really did cheat kids because I was too, too caught up in and too worried about and spending too much time and too much energy on my things that I had to do for me because I thought it was important because it was my job, it was my career, and uh, not, not putting family and kids at the top of the priority list instead of after my career and my job and those obligations. Well, I can look at it from, from both sides because having both been uh, in the house with you and growing up with you from the moment I was born until the moment I left for college, um, I certainly saw how driven and how hardworking you were. And there were absolutely sacrifices that had to be made and things that were missed. And I know how, how you can basically just put the blinders on and the whole world disappears when you're in the middle of a project. And I, of course, inherited that same mental and creative wiring. But I'm wondering if there's also a flip side to it where there was a lot of benefit to seeing that. I'm not saying that it was perfect, um, but work-life balance is a thing that, uh, I mean, it's really the foundation of everything that I'm teaching people on this podcast and in my program and in this industry now is this idea of trying to, to be more present and not be so focused on your work. But I think on the flip side, 
there's a lot to be said for you having modeled that and that having a lot to do with where it is that I've ended up so far and where it is that I continue to go. So I, I don't know if it's all bad, um, but I think that you're, you're looking from it from the, the lens of there are a lot of things that you feel like you missed because you were so focused and driven. So what, what do you think some of those things might have been um, that you missed because you were so intent on doing whatever the next project was? It's general, but it, for the most part, it's just time. In my case, I was spending uh, an inordinate amount of time on business and work and responsibility. And the, the time with family and the emphasis on family and the kids and so forth had to suffer some. And it, and it definitely suffered some. And in some cases, probably suffered a lot. And that was probably that was probably one of the when I, when I do it next time when I do it for my next family, that will be one of the major changes I will make. Well, if uh, if it makes you feel any better, even though you know whether or not you had that that opportunity at the moment to to try it again or not, um, I, I've certainly learned some of those lessons. Um, I've taken both the good ones about being very driven and very focused on my work, but realizing that there are other things to focus on as well. Um, so if if you had to live vicariously through me, know that a lot of those those lessons have been learned. Um, but there, there there is one story that I think would be both entertaining, but also very apropos of this conversation uh, that just give a glimpse into what it was that uh, I learned about uh, work ethic growing up. Uh, so there, there are a whole lot of circumstances that are going to go into this one story. But talk to me a little bit about uh, what the process looked for me of being potty trained. <laughs> oh, man, you're bringing you're bringing back old memories. Uh, this, this is a very, very good story for, for combining career and work. Uh, in order to have a, a living wage and a paying job at one time, I had to take a job where I had to go to work in Chicago, which was over 100 miles from where we lived. And I literally had to drive to work in Chicago every day. And this was a time when there wasn't any care for you. So I actually drove to work every day in Chicago and took you with me in the car. And this was at a time when you weren't potty trained. And so I was in the process. We had the potty chair in the back of the car and in the process of trying to potty train you. And I, I was in sales. So I literally, I literally had to go into sophisticated businesses and talk to top executives, give my sales pitch and have you with me. And the first sales pitch that I remember about you with me, it was early morning and there was a, a very, very fancy executive office with a great big window and it was early morning and the window was covered with dew. And while I was trying to make a, a high powered sales pitch of the guy, you were overdrawing and wiping your hands and drawing pictures over and messing up his window that was covered with dew. And the other one that you referred to that you asked about I was in the process of potty training you and uh, wasn't having any great success, but I was working on it. And I forget, I forget what city it was, but it was a city near Chicago, one of the Chicago suburbs. And I was driving around to my next appointment and it was time, it was time to catch the potty training. And I was actually in the town square and I actually stopped in the town square and uh, got the potty chair out of the car and set it out on the sidewalk in the town square. So 
you you literally you literally had your first successful potty training in the town square in one of the suburbs of Chicago. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the topo mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the topo mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. Anytime anybody uh, complains about the complexities and the difficulties of potty training their kids, um, I say, there's, there's no doubt I'm, I'm right there with you, but uh, it, it could be more complicated and more difficult than you think. And then I, I tell a little bit of the story, just as uh, if we're going along the lines of, uh, you know, memories growing up and being, I, I vaguely, vaguely remember the, the long drives to Chicago, but I certainly remember the many, many summer vacations where other kids were going to summer camps and playing and outside doing whatever. And I was driving back and forth an hour an hour each way, so two hours a day in the car, going to West Dallas um, and helping you stuff envelopes and collate magazines and staple brochures. And then that transformed once we moved to the farm into entire summers of building barbed wire fences and framing pole sheds. So I I, I had very unique uh, summer vacation experiences that I feel a, a lot of kids may not be able to relate to unless they were uh, they were farm kids as well. But certainly the drives back and forth to West Dallas. I don't know many kids at all that have uh, those stories of their their summer vacations when they were seven or eight years old. Well, that, that, that certainly relates to the culture of my upbringing. Uh, that what, what, what you do is you, you learn to work. You get up, you, you get up in the morning and you go to work and you work all day till the day is over and then you quit work. Not any clocks. You don't start work at eight o'clock in the morning and stop at four. You get up and you work. And the way I was brought up, that's that's what I I can from from the time I was eight nine years old. 
I can remember I got up at six o'clock in the morning and I worked all day long. And when it got dark, so you couldn't work outside anymore. You came in and you went to bed. And I, it did, I didn't stop to think about making a conscious choice. Of, gee, gee, this is good for a kid to learn. It was just the way it was. And so it wasn't like I thought it through and had a plan. I just did what was part of my, my genetics and part of my upbringing and figured what, you, what you're going to do. In fact, this goes back, this goes back to uh, my father's teaching to me, because I remember one day during one of the long days when I had lots and lots of work to do, and I suspect I wasn't more than 11 or 12 years old, and being 11 years, 12 years old and having to do hard, dirty work that I didn't like, I was muttering and complaining, and I was unhappy with the work I was doing. And my father stopped and sat me down and said, let me, let me explain something to you. He said, uh, what you're going to do in your life is you're going to work. I said, uh, unless you're a very unusual situation, you're going to spend your whole life working. It's what you're going to do. And if you don't learn to enjoy your work, you're going to waste your life. He said, you don't have to do this. You don't have to be a farmer if you don't want to. You don't have to clean barns. He said, but what you have to do is you have to find something to do where you enjoy your work because that's you're going to be your life. So you've got to learn to enjoy your work. And I thought, what a silly old man. And it took, it took roughly 20 years for that to sink in. But one day... And I think I think I was probably in my 30s. It occurred to me that he was absolutely right. And I was spending an awful lot of time doing things that I wasn't enjoying that much. And so I said, he's absolutely right. You have to structure your life so you enjoy your work and you're doing things that are worthwhile and you feel good about what you're doing. And because if you don't, you'll waste your life. Well, I can tell you that uh, I talk to people all day, every day now that have also had that realization. And they come to me because they don't know how, how is it that I figure this out? It's, it's too late, I can't make the transition into something I enjoy, I'm too old, or I make too much money and I can't support my family if I make this change. Um, so the, this is, I would say that this is rampant in our culture, that uh, the, the idea of being driven and successful is driven towards culture's definition of success, which is, uh, monetary possessions or a certain amount of income or a certain uh, image or perception of what success should be. And uh, I've one of the, and you, you've told me this uh, several times before, um, you imparted the same lesson on me, but fortunately I learned it way faster than you did. So I, I figured this out by like maybe college. So I knew that by the time I decided I was going to choose a profession, it wasn't going to be based on what I should be doing or what should make the most money or what culture thinks is acceptable being a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or all these professional services uh, that provide security. I chose to go down a very unusual road of deciding that I wanted to, to work in the, the film industry, which for some people, it doesn't seem unusual, but it certainly was unusual to a small farming community in northern Wisconsin and was not even looked very well upon by some of the community that thought, well, who do you think you are to, to, to leave this community and go off and work in Hollywood and Los Angeles and do all this creative artsy stuff? But it's because I knew that I had to choose something if I'm gonna do it all day, every day, I've gotta love it. And now not only have I found 
things to do that I love, but I'm now helping others rediscover that path so they can pursue fulfilling careers. So that one little conversation led to you making that realization, which has now led to the entire path that I have followed. So that was that was a pretty transformative conversation. I actually have forgotten a little bit about that timeline for deciding you were going to be an editor in Hollywood. It actually It actually happened when you were in the fifth grade. And that's where I was your principal. So I was aware of what was going on in school. And they had a tech ed class. And it was with Mr. Gunderson. And so you went into tech ed for a quarter. And he had a very, very primitive editing studio in the corner. And you got in there and worked with that editing equipment for nine weeks. And you came out of there. And you actually said to me specifically, you said, I absolutely love this. I've decided. I've decided what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to go to Hollywood and I'm going to be an editor. You said that in fifth grade. Wow. I honestly don't remember that conversation at all, but the the timeline, it does stack up. Are you sure it was fifth grade? Because that seems really early. Uh, it was middle. Well, it could have been middle well, school. See. Remember, you were my principal was, for a long time. So it was middle. It was middle school because they had junior high tech ed. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. It was middle school. Cause I can remember, um, it was either seventh or eighth grade where it was the first time that I had been in, in that, that tech ed space. And for anybody that's listening, they know editing technology. So when I say that it was all linear VHS to VHS with video toasters there, the people listening to this know what that means. Um, but I can remember it was either seventh or eighth grade, the very first video project that I ever did. And by ninth grade, I can, I mean, I was already doing highlight reels for the football team and every single project that we had to hand in, I would beg my teachers. I would say, can I do a video instead of writing something? Some of them wouldn't let me get away with it, um, but some of them did let me get away with it. Uh, But it was all things about anything I could create that was video based that I could uh, take all the pieces that were out of order and put them back into some semblance of an order. But I didn't know that I had such a clear perception of the fact that I could actually do it for a living. My memory was that I really enjoyed doing this, but it never seemed like something you could actually do for a living and get paid for. But it sounds like maybe I had more clarity about that than I thought at a young age. I I honestly have no memory of that conversation at all. I I don't think you knew anything about how hard it was going to be or the path or what the financial rewards would be or not be. But you just decided that's what you love doing and that's what you were going to do. In fact, you you actually used the term, this is what I'm going to spend my life doing. Hmm. Well, I, I was I was right until about the, the ripe old age of 38 or 39. Um, and then I decided that uh, I've, I've done what I need to do on that path. And now I want to uh, help other people find that same path. But I, I didn't realize how early I uh, had learned the lesson about learning to uh, to choose something to do that you love. So... Um, that's uh, that's interesting. Well, uh, as long as we're on the subject of all of these various memories, um, that brings us to the the next official question on the list, which is, what is the proudest memory that you have of being a parent? Oh man, that's that's not a fair question, because uh, especially if you're talking about five kids, you think of a proud moment with one of the kids. Why uh, you're going to forget four others that are just as important. But I think I think that the proudest moment uh, as a parent is is now uh, when the world is such a mess 
and things that are so difficult for everybody and look back and think about all the mistakes I made and all the things I done, have done wrong and look at the five children that I have. And they are all very good people. Uh, they all uh, work hard and have good jobs. They all have wonderful families. And so that really, the, the overall success that all of my children are good people. They're caring people. Uh, they have good families. They work hard. Couldn't be anything more important. Well, I would I would second that. I would say that that's a uh, that's that's both a very diplomatic answer, <laughs> so you don't get yourself in trouble. Um, but I also think that that could be that that's the the best answer possible. So uh, on the fly, not having any preparation or reading the questions, I see you knocked that one out of the park. Hey, I like to do I like to I like to uh, do things right and get a good score. Yeah, I, I know you're a high achiever. I know where I'm I kind of wired, from. I'm kind of wired that way. I'm kind of wired that way. I like to be at the top of the class. Yes, I'm I'm well aware of that. You've you've drilled that into my brain more than once. That's for <laughs> sure. Um, so well, along those lines, still sticking to somewhat the same conversation. What are the three words that you would say best describe your approach to being a parent? I can think of at least one of them for sure, but I'm not going to put words into your mouth. But there's a word that jumped out of my mind immediately when I read this question. That's a that's a tough one, and I'm having come um, I'm having trouble coming up with one word, not to mention three. But I'm th the first thing I'm thinking about is responsible responsibility, and certainly I think about discipline. That was my word. That that was in giant <laughs> neon letters. As soon as I read the question, I saw discipline. I was, bold. I, was, I, was, I, was I was afraid you might remember discipline. Oh, yes. That word popped off the page for me. So discipline, responsibility. Uh, and caring. Love. Once again, I, I would say that those are those are all great options. Um, and those those all very clearly personify. I think that the the if I were to to take a maybe breaking the rules here, but taking some of that and packaging up into a, a compound word or two words that are officially not one word, it would be tough love. Would you agree with that? Uh, I like that. Yeah, I've heard that term. Uh, that 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 was a term that was invented uh, long before after I had raised you. But because uh, I remember when that got invented. But, yeah, that that really does cover it. So I, w I would say that that's probably the uh, the approach that I've taken. There's maybe not 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 quite as intense the discipline as I grew up with, at least not yet. That may change. Uh, definitely the responsibility. But the tough love is a big one where I mean, I, I went through this experience twice just before having this call with you where uh, my son, uh, Elliot, um, he's in the process of putting together a little video project for uh, applying for a middle school. And he had put together a, a treatment, a little summary of the project and was all excited about it. And I said, this looks great, but here are all the challenges and the complications that you're not thinking about. And he got really frustrated because he just wanted me to praise him and say, good job. And I'm like, but I'm not going to do that because you're not going to learn from that. I need to, to also give you honest feedback, even if it's not what you want to hear, because it's number one, going to teach you how to process negative feedback or challenging feedback from other people. But number two, you have to, you're, you're just going to have to learn how to deal with challenges as they come along. And he got so frustrated with me, but I'm okay with that because I know that big picture, even though it might create 
conflict now, I think it's going to be worth it for his critical thinking abilities and his ability to endure difficulties going forward. So I've I've he, I've certainly inherited will, that he, tough love. Well, he will appreciate it when he's thirty five. That's about how long it takes. Yes. I, so I'm I'm I, I'm continually thinking that I'm like, just got to wait until he's thirty five. Just got to wait until he's thirty five, and all of it will be worth it. Um, and I can only imagine how many millions of times you had to recite that to yourself when I was growing <laughs> up. Because um, I certainly didn't make it easy on you, that's for sure. Um, but I, I, ha- I had the same realization, which is one of the reasons that we are doing this right now. Um, I also had the same experience with Evelyn right before the call where she and I were playing a, a board game, a strategy game. Um, and she – at this point, I think she's learned and is old enough. Um, but I think when the kids were younger uh, and even my wife to a certain extent would just expect that I would let them win. Do I strike you as the kind of parent that's just going to let my kids win at something? Not exactly. No. But my belief is that if I can show them how, what it feels like to lose but continually iterate and get better and fail forwards, that to me is a greater lesson than just giving them the immediate gratification of feeling like they won. But I know that there are some people that disagree with that philosophy. You, you have learned well, Grasshopper. Well, tell, tell that to my wife, because every once in a while, we, 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 we debate this, uh, this conversation. Why can't you just let them win? Well, because that's not going to serve them in the long run, but short term, they feel good. It's like, well, I, I, I try to find the middle ground where maybe I'm not going to be as hard on them as possible, but if they're going to win, I want them to earn it. And I actually, I saw this happen. Uh, maybe you can remember a story similar to this, um, but I've been playing Monopoly with Elliot for years, and I know that that's something that we used to play as well. And I never let him win. And then all of a sudden, he just started legitimately winning. And I'm like, I can't beat my kid at Monopoly. But I think that the the payoff is that he knows that I'm not letting him win. So there's a lot more satisfaction when he actually beats me. Like, I've just thrown my hands up. I'm like, I can't beat this kid at Monopoly anymore. Because he knows all my strategies because I taught him all of my strategies. But he gets a lot more satisfaction out of it than if, if he thought that I was letting him win. So I'm doing the same thing with Evelyn right now with this new – a uh, new board game that I'm teaching her. And uh, so it's it, it's a longer road. It's a tougher one. And it, uh, the tough love can be difficult on both sides because as a parent, I just want my kids to feel good all the time too. But I know that that's, that's not really going to be worth it, uh, big picture. So that having been said, talking about uh, grandkids and uh, whatnot, the next question on the list is in regards to both their career choices and also their life choices. What is the most important thing that you think that my children should focus on as they continue to grow up? And some of this you may have already answered, but if I were to sit you down on the couch right now and have a deep introspective conversation with either my grandkids or your other grandkids, what, what's the most important thing that you would say that all of them should focus on? I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my Topomat, and I have finally discovered what I now consider the Topomat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for 
for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. It's very, very hard if you're going to focus and narrow it down to one thing. I think, I think it's a combination of things. And I don't know if there's one word that covers the combination, but uh, it comes under the heading of enjoying life and life is worthwhile. There's a lot because if, if they decide that what they what they in, really enjoy doing is uh, doing something that's not good or a waste of time, why that doesn't make sense. So so it's got to be a combination of enjoying things that are worthwhile and going the right direction. But you've got to you've got to get yourself in a situation where you enjoy your life, you appreciate life, you're just having a good time in life. And if at the same time that what you enjoy doing is something that's a good thing for you and for other people and worthwhile, and it's a good thing for for all the people you come in contact with, why then then so much the better. But if you're not enjoying your life, you're doing something wrong and you got to change the course of your life because that's it all comes under that heading. Life, life is fleeting, and uh, if you don't enjoy your life, uh, it's, you're going to waste it. So whatever you have to do to enjoy your life, that comes first. So as an extension of that, what three words would you say best describe who you have tried to be in life and how it is that you want to be remembered? Uh, caring. I don't know the word for it. Uh, it's a phrase. Uh, I want to make a difference. Is there, is there a one word that's, that, that covers, a, I, w- I want to change things and I want the world to be a better place. I want people to be better because of me. I want to feel, I want to feel like I've made a difference. I don't know if there is a single I, word for that. Make a difference. I got it down to three. <laughs> All right. So, that it's, so I would say that that would maybe be in place of the second word. So caring, somebody that wants to make a difference or make a positive impact on others. That would be the second, even though it's a phrase and not a word. What would be the third? I almost feel guilty saying this, but uh, I can't get away from it. I, I think of the word responsibility, which is really very close to the other two. But I, I need to I need to feel like I'm a responsible person, whether it's what I do uh, during the pandemic or how I treat people or whether I do things that are, are just because something somebody else needs. but. Uh, I really, I really want to feel according to my values 
that I am responsible. So caring, responsible, and somebody who wants to make a difference and make a positive impact. That's the best I can do. That's the best you can do. It's all we can do, right? That's right. So what would you say are the three best decisions you have ever made in your life? Oh, you're going to get me in trouble. (laughs) Uh, Well, number one, at the very, very top of the list, has to come under, there's a lot of subheads, but it has to come under the heading of teaching. Uh, I am a teacher. I've been a teacher. I will always be a teacher. And all of the other things that you just had me talk about from the responsibility and making a difference and enjoying life are, are all subheads under teaching. So to me, to me, the most important thing in the world that a person can do is to be a good teacher. And if you're a good teacher uh, and you enjoy being a good teacher, you're going to enjoy your life and you're going to be responsible and you're going to make a difference and you're going to influence a lot of other people and change the world. So in my mind, in my mind, and I realize this is selfish. I know, I know medical people and researchers and are wonderful people and they make a fantastic difference. But I really feel very, very comfortable that I have done the best thing that I could do for myself and for for humanity and being a good teacher. I don't feel like, boy, if I'd have been a if I'd have been a brain surgeon or if I'd been a physicist or if I'd have been a whatever, I could have done more for the world. I I don't feel that way at all. I don't feel there's another thing in the world that I could have done that's been as important or made as much difference. So decision number one is making the decision to dedicate your life to teaching. How about the other two decisions? Oh, I forgot I had two more. <laughs> well, you started with the good one. You, you started with the lead, so that's good. But if you had to pick two other decisions, uh, could could be anything. We've, we've, we've hit the big one, but two other decisions, what would you think of? Well, I, I really think, and this is really something that's come later in life, but I think I think the decision that uh, the rural life and uh, being involved in a sparse population or and living on a farm and being a far away from the hustle and bustle of the city and people in high populations, I'm very very happy and comfortable. And and thanks to Zoom, I can have a, I can have a little bit of both worlds. I can keep out in the country and live on a gravel road and have uh, my nearest neighbor be a mile away and the nearest stoplight being 20 miles away and still do the things that I love to do and, and work with kids all day long, every day. Well, along, along those lines. So if, I, if, I, if, I got, if I got in two, you've gotten well, to, I still have one to go. You've got one to go, but just as one to throw on there, if I were to to answer this question for you, I mean, there, there, are, whole, there are millions of decisions that you've made throughout your life that I'm not even aware well, I'll, of. Oh, I'll, I'll let you answer it for me as long as I've got veto power. No, so I'm having trouble. I'm I'm having trouble coming up with the third one. But if you can come, if you can come up with a good one, I'll take. It. Well, unfortunately for you, I'm not going to help you with the third one. I'm doubling down on the second. So if I if I were to, I, there are many many decisions you've made before that I was born. Many that you made after uh, I was born that I wouldn't be aware of. But if I were to 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 point to one. One fork in the road where a decision is yes or no, and that one led to the path of my life has taken and had the most formative, uh, was the most formative decision as far as who I am. It was the decision to move to the farm. 
Like there, there's no question that that was of all the decisions made, micro decisions, macro decisions, by far the most formative one is the fact that at 10 years old, I was uprooted from a, a suburban community in Southern Wisconsin going to an upscale private school and basically from a Friday until a Monday morning thrown into a completely different universe. It was a four hour drive. I might as well, I might as well have needed a passport. <laughs> like it, it was, it was like being transported into a foreign country that I had never seen or had been aware of. Um, and it was that one moment that changed the trajectory of everything that happened in my life, who I became. So if, if, if I were to, to double down on one of your decisions, like you already mentioned, it would be making the choice to, to do the rural life, which at the time, as I've now heard in hindsight, was, was quite the conversation and quite the decision. But uh, I would say that looking back, it was definitely a good one, at least as far as the investment in me is concerned. I don't know about the, the financial investment side of it, but as far as the investment in my education, I would say the most formative thing would be the fact that, uh, that we moved uh, to the farm to northern Wisconsin for sure. Uh, but that doesn't help you because you still have one more decision. Oh, man, this is hard. Uh, what do you think I was going to make this easy on you? Yeah. I, I got to come up with a word. I'm not sure this comes under it. If, it, if, I, if I were going to give it a word, the, the word that comes closest is love, which comes under caring. But I guess I guess the decision that falls under a word is, and this is this has been a long, long time. This is this isn't something hopefully it's been there somewhat my entire life. But it's it's a word that has really, really become paramount. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna pick as my third word, and you can put a lot of subheads under it, but I'm gonna put the word love. And uh, a lot of other things are very important in terms of I, I think that's an easy question, in, unless you make me get specific about the decisions, because I would like to think that every decision, every decision that I make about what I'm going to do comes under that heading. If you don't have love, it's gonna it's gonna affect what I do the rest of today. It's gonna affect how how I treat my wife this afternoon. It's gonna affect uh, it's gonna affect caring about the birds and caring about the rabbits and caring about everything. But I can't I can't do better and and give you specific decisions because the, all decisions, every general decision is based on that. So you give me you give me a decision and that it'll work all right so what what you've done once again as the the super high achiever is you didn't just choose a decision you chose a meta decision that applies to all of your decisions so you can't just be the a student you got to be the a plus student that's right right so the so if if we're to summarize then the three best decisions you've ever you've ever made are number 1 choosing to dedicate your life to teaching uh, number two, choosing the rural life. And number three, the decision, which is the meta decision of applying love to all future decisions. You did it. Wow, well done. Um, so the next question on here, I think we've probably already covered. If you feel like we've covered this, we can move on. But if something new sparks it or you just want to summarize it, that's fine. But I, I do feel like we have already covered this, but I want to address it because it is part of these questions. Um, what are you the most proud of in life in general? We've talked about proudest moment as a parent. You know, the decision of being a teacher, making an impact. But what are you the most proud of in life in general? Uh, yeah, that's easy. And I, I think we have covered it. 
quite thoroughly. The, 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 proudest, the proudest thing is that I have and I am still making a significant difference in the lives of children every single day. Their lives, their lives are completely changed from, from the influence that I'm able to have on them. So that, that is the, the most important thing, that I'm able to do something that's really changing the lives and the course of the lives of children. So along those lines, again, this may be some summary because we've gone off the beaten path a little bit here and there. We, we don't need to get too deep into the details here. Actually, I, I did a podcast with your spouse. I uh, did a podcast with my mom a while ago, and I may do a follow-up that's a, kind of a mirror image of this one. But what message would you have for specifically your spouse that you would want her to, to think about as far as the, the lessons learned in life or the lessons that you've learned from her either throughout your 40 plus year journey, everything you've dealt with the last few years, um, what, what, what are some messages that you would want to share with her about life? Well, that's, I don't really know that I have any message. Uh, I, don't, I don't think there's any messages that I have about life that she hasn't seen and heard, I'm afraid. Uh, but that, that's also, that's also gonna come under that, uh, if you let me get away with uh, the word for the general heading of love. That's going to come on. That's the only thing that matters. The only thing that really matters, everything else will fall into place. We got all kinds of other decisions and all kinds of other things and all kinds of other problems and just things to do. But it, everything, everything has to come under the heading of love. And if we've got that, everything is going to be fine. Everything is going to be wonderful. So I would say that that is, a, I think, once again, to, to summarize it, I think that's a, a really strong way to look at it. I'd like to, to dive in a little bit uh, deeper into this specifically, and this might dovetail into uh, what's going to be the, the final question. But over the, the last five or six years, there have obviously been a lot of very acute challenges uh, dealing with, uh, with my mom, with your wife. So I have a podcast that I did with her a long time ago, but it's been a while. I will link to it in the show notes. But if I wanted to summarize it very, very quickly for somebody that doesn't know the story, and I'm not even sure I'm going to get the timeline right at this point, but it would have been either 2014 or 2015, um, she was diagnosed uh, with lymphoma, with a very, very acute form of lymphoma that's incurable. And I got the phone call from uh, my physician and out in LA who had talked to her oncologist. And it's, again, it won't go into all the, the details, but basically he had talked to the oncologist and had uh, looked at the lab work. And he called me and he and I are, are close friends. So it wasn't just like a, a very um, sterile call from a physician. It was like a call from a friend that said, you need to get on a plane and you need to fly out as soon as possible. Like the, the, this, is, this is serious stuff. And you need to get out there as fast as you can because the things don't look good. So it was basically get on a plane by the end of the day, just so you don't, you know, you don't, you don't miss your last opportunity. And that was about six years ago. And we were told the best case after mom had recovered from the worst of it, that if everything like we're talking miracle, like the we're talking the the spectrum of we have realistically, this is how much time you have. If it's a miracle, you've got 18 months. That was six years ago, and we all know that we've been living the, this miracle space of borrowed time for years upon years now, and she's in amazing health. I frankly think that she has more energy and is more vibrant than she was than I remember her being when I was a kid. 
So what are some of the, the lessons that maybe you have learned having all of this amazing new borrowed time that we never thought we were going to get five or six years ago? Would be anything new. Uh, it, it's going to all come back under the heading of love. But to add a little bit to this story about getting an amazing 18 months, I'm sure you've heard this story before. But it wasn't a matter of being given 18 months. This all happened very suddenly. I mean, she went from being okay to being in the emergency room at the hospital in a matter of three days and got the, the, the report that she was very, very sick. And they didn't know what it was, but the doctor said, I think, I think it's cancer. I think it's lymphoma. And it was Friday afternoon. And the doctor came and sat down with me and said, we have to wait for lab results to come back uh, on Monday before we know what we're dealing with. He said, but I don't think she's gonna live until Monday. So, so it, it isn't gonna make any difference what the lab results are on Monday because she, he said, I don't think she's going to live three more days. He said, if you want to make the decision, uh, we can put her on chemo today, which I think is a good chance of what she needs to have. But I don't know if it's the right thing to do or not. But you need to make that decision. That was a tough, and I had to make it all, but she was in a situation where she couldn't be part of the decision. I mean, she was so sick. She wasn't part of any decisions. So I remember Friday afternoon, and remember that decision. And I said, go ahead. Let's, let's go for it. And apparently it was the right decision because she made it to Monday. And she's now made it to six years later. Goes back to the, the meta decision of, uh, of making every future decision all based on the, the three words that we talked about and specifically yep. the, the one word, right? Yep. I would say a great segue from that story to the, the final question on this list of 20 questions, um, which I think could be a, a tough one, but I think it's going to be a good one. And again, some of it might be a summary, some of it might not be, but I think it's a good way to close the conversation. What is it that you are the most thankful for in your life? Family, love, caring, feeling good about making a difference. That is, it is pretty much all repeat, but all of the all of the things, all of the things that I've already mentioned that are very important to me, are what what's made life worthwhile and what makes me very happy. So I guess that is in way of summary, but uh, I can't do I can't do a better job on adding anything to that. That uh, it all comes under those things that are really really make a difference and are important. And they all come under the headings of love and caring and making a difference. Being happy with what you're doing and and imparting that to as many other people as possible. So that's the end of the 20 questions. Um, but because you've taught me to not just do my assignment, but to also do extra credit. <laughs> and always, always, always go for that extra little piece and optimize whatever I can. I have a 21st question. Are there any questions that I haven't asked you that you would like to answer? Actually, I don't think so. Uh, you, you, you really, you really covered the waterfront. 
and in some cases covered it more thoroughly than you should have because it was it gave you some tough questions to answer, which is really good. So I won't complain about the tough questions. But no, I think I feel like there's there's no, as they say, there is no stone left unturned. I think you've turned every stone. They've been good ones. I would say that we've we've definitely gotten to the the core and the heart of who you are, what you're made of, how that's driven your decisions, what your deeper whys are, which again, I think is a huge part of why I wanted to have this conversation for the sake of my audience so they can better understand what really drives somebody to make the decisions that they do, to choose the path that they choose. Um, and then like I also alluded to at the very beginning of this, um, I put myself first for uh, for this interview. This wasn't about my audience. This is about me and wanting to have this conversation and have it on the record. And you know, when when the time comes, um, if you're not able to to share the words in person with my kids when they need to hear it the most, um, I'm going to have this available to me to do that um, if for whatever circumstance I need it. So this uh, th- this it means a lot to me that we were able to do this and get it on the record. And I hope that I've inspired other people that are listening to this to maybe take the time to block out two or three hours and have uh, what's very worthwhile, but can also be a a difficult conversation to have and and get on the record because I think it's uh, I think this is an important, important thing to do, which is why I wanted to to get us to, to do it and do it specifically for Father's Day and this. This has meant a lot to me and obviously all the the lessons that you have imparted on me uh, for my entire life, whether it was the uh, the potty training in the town square or the the summers of barbed wire fences and collating and putting on labels and building pole sheds and all the other madness that I endured. You know, they're like you said, it'll take until 35 years old or maybe 40 years old on a podcast, but it was worth it. And much love to you. Love you very much. Thank you for everything. Yep, I love you as well. So uh, happy Father's Day. Thank you. And to you, Father. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.